This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. Bad hombres. Those are the people that President Donald Trump says he's targeting for deportation under his immigration policy. The people he calls, quote, illegal aliens, the gangbangers, violent criminals, and drug dealers who threaten actively the public safety of our homeland and undermine national security by mere presence of being here or mere attempt to be here. But a very different and disturbing pattern is starting to emerge on the ground and particularly at the southwest border. In communities from Maryland to California and Oregon, even outside that border space, immigration lawyers are reporting that individuals are being picked up with minimal or no criminal records who pose almost no risk to anyone, particularly with no prior background. More than 90% of removal proceedings initiated in the first couple months of this administration have been with people who have committed no crimes at all, other than living in the country without permission. But an even more startling picture is starting to emerge. And as Debbie Nathan of The Intercept reports, federal courtrooms across the Southwest are being flooded with distraught mothers and fathers, parents who have been charged with misdemeanor illegal entry, but separated from their children. A massive shift in policy by this administration as a way to stop families from trying to reach the United States, but frankly decried as traumatizing and inhumane. Last month, as The Guardian reported, a Honduran father separated from his wife and a three-year-old son killed himself in a Texas jail cell. And as Debbie Nathan of The Intercept goes on to report, in late April, magistrate courts in Brownsville, Texas, suddenly turned into zero-tolerance factories for criminalizing migrants, many of whom have had, again, no prior criminal record. So, for many of those individuals around the globe, but particularly in Central America, hailing from murderously violent circumstances and fleeing to the U.S. seeking asylum, what's different? Isn't it consistent with international law to be able to seek that asylum? Isn't the United States etched within the very marble of our Statue of Liberty a desire to include those that are seeking a better life or a different life? Debbie Nathan joins American Enough to discuss how this shift in policy is not only playing out for families and children across the border of the United States, but what this frankly means for America's identity of a haven for immigrant pursuits and broader American opportunities. This is American Enough with your host, Vikram Iyer. Debbie, thank you for joining American Enough. So how is, does this reporting square with international law and, and specifically U.S. recognition of that international law? And I ask that because not only do we have asylum laws specifically designed for those that are fleeing treacherous, dangerous, almost murderous circumstances, but we also have it in a way in which folks can't be prosecuted or criminalized when they are a seeking asylum. And yet we have the Justice Department deeming a lot of these parents at the border bringing their children as, frankly, smugglers. So why is that the shift in, in dialogue that the DOJ is pointing to? And is that consistent with the way the United States has addressed international asylum seekers by way of international law in the past? Uh, no, it's completely inconsistent to characterize people coming in to, you know, escape 
situations in countries where they feel that as a class they're going to be murdered or their kids are going to be put in great danger. It's um, calling them smugglers really violates not only international law, but national law. There's um, the Immigration and Nationality Act, which is many decades old, says that um, anybody, you know, they call them aliens, the old language. So an alien on U.S. soil has the right to request asylum. And it doesn't matter whether they come over a bridge or to an airport that's a port of entry or whether they cross a river or a desert, which is an illegal entry. It doesn't matter. They're supposed to be asked, the people who come, you know, unauthorized are supposed to be asked when they're apprehended by the Border Patrol. And by the way, they they typically just walk right up to Border Patrol agents. They don't run from them. So uh, the Border Patrol traditionally has asked the what's called the fear question out in the field when they apprehend people. Are you afraid to return to your country? And if they say yes, then there is no criminal prosecution traditionally. They're just put into the immigration system, which is a civil and administrative type of law. It's not criminal law. And and what has shifted um, in, in, from what you've observed from the way the United States dealt with uh, these types of fear questions and the enforcement around these different policies from um, prior to the appointment of uh, Jeff Sessions as the attorney general um, to after his appointment? Uh, you know, earlier, actually, right around when Trump was elected back late in 2016, what um, immigration rights advocates started to see in detention centers when they interviewed people who made it into detention centers was that they had been prevented even that early uh, from applying for asylum when they went up to Bridges. It was already in place by then that agents were telling them, no, you can't apply for asylum. There's no asylum anymore for Central Americans. Um, Trump has ended that. There's no room here. Go back. So um, this is actually, you know, this kind of attitude that that there's no more asylum or people don't have the right to claim asylum actually goes back now about more than a year and a half. Um, But this recent um, announcement by Sessions, which he calls zero tolerance, which is that everyone who crosses the border now unauthorized is going to be prosecuted. We, you know, there are, are some laws that go back now, actually, I believe back to the Clinton administration, if not further, um, which criminalize people for crossing if they're caught right near the border. There's misdemeanor, you know, illegal entry, and there's felony reentry. But those were never applied to people who said that they were seeking asylum. Um, And so that's what's changed. Um, People are now being put through these proceedings in federal court that are horrifying to see. You know, um, you see somewhere between 20 and and 50 people at a time chained, like triple chains, with chains around their waists, and then their hands are chained to the waist chain, and their feet are shackled. This is men and women. And they all come in together, and they typically are represented by one lawyer, you know, um, um, either a federal public defender or a court-appointed lawyer who gets $140 per case. And they're run through these mass production guilt rituals. I don't know what else to call them. They all have to answer in unison, you know, do you understand what's going on? And then they all have to say, see, you know, really loudly. And the very few questions are asked to them as, as individuals, 
And there comes a point when they can actually address the judge after they've pleaded guilty and before they're sentenced, where they have the right to say something to the judge about themselves or their case. And I have seen instances where they stand up and they're weeping and they say to the judge, you know, where is my child? What's happened to my child? When am I going to see my child again? Um, so these are this is happening in every federal court on the border every week. There are, are um, courts now that are processing, you know, hundreds of people per week back before Sessions did this, which was in pretty much started in late April, really. Before that, there might be a few cases per week. Like in Brownsville, where I live, there's a federal court. And I was told that before Sessions announced this policy, um, maybe there were three to eight people per week who were put through criminal proceedings for illegal entry. Now in Brownsville, there are weeks when there are 100. Wow. And, you know, there are there's a lot to unpack here by way of kind of the humanity of the circumstances as well as the legality of the circumstances. Just, you know, double-clicking for a moment on the on the latter, um, certainly the uptick in cases that you just mentioned is a result of this, you know, zero-tolerance enforcement policy that the Department of Justice is pushing. But simply from the perch of the benches that these jurists sit on, um, is there any wiggle room that they themselves have to show sort of decency or humanity in reconciling the, you know, the inhumane treatment of, of that child separation versus sort of the prior way of doing or conducting um, American policy around this matter? Or is the fact that the Attorney General of the United States uh, demanding 100 percent enforcement a, a signal to the courts that they, they too have to process and enforce these laws in an absolute way? Well, what I've seen, you know, during the first month of this enforcement, which was in May, was judges, you know, saying to the defendants, look, there's nothing I can do about you losing your children. That's that's a separate issue. You know, that's an that, that's just not something I deal with here. I'm dealing here with the misdemeanor or the felony charge against you for illegal entry. But having said that, I can also say that um, I have seen judges that appear to be extremely troubled by this. Um, uh, I got a tape, actually, which The Intercept published of a judge in Brownsville who um, had been told when people got up to allocute, which is the word they use when they ask the judge or tell the judge whatever they want. So during some of these allocutions, when some of the defendants have said, where's my child? There was one day when the judge said, well, I think that your child is supposed to be reunited with you um, at the detention center. And then he kind of stopped and kind of it was clear that he didn't know whether that was true or not. And he asked the assistant U.S. attorney, is that true? And she seemed a little bit hesitant, too. So there was this general feeling that we don't really know what's been happening. We know what we're told, but we're not sure that's true. And, of course, it wasn't true that they're being reunited. And so the judge kind of made this strange but compelling speech to the AUSA, to the U.S. attorney. He said, it better be true what I've been told, because if it's not, you know, you can imagine if you can imagine hell, this is hell. So wow. that was pretty extreme. That was kind of the talk of the courthouse. Um, but, uh, you know, there are I don't know. There are just things going on um, in McAllen, which is another city down here on the border where there's a big federal court. Um, the federal public defenders are now. When the defendants come in in their chains, you know, all hundred of them in the morning, they've got about eight 
they come in about 8 a.m. and the federal public defenders have an hour to talk to them, which is about five minutes per client. And um, they are telling, they are saying to the defendants, stand up and walk over to that side of the room if you've lost your children. And over on that side of the room is a civil rights lawyer who then interviews them about having lost their children and um, takes some information to try to locate the children and perhaps put these people into a class action suit. So the fact that the court is allowing this to happen, I think, is kind of remarkable. Um, so, you know, there are little things that you see like that. Um, I heard that in the McAllen court, there was a judge who ordered that all the defendants have their shackles removed. So, so you know, these, yes. are, these are things that, I mean, they're, they're small things, but from a moral point of view, they're big things. They matter. Absolutely. Um, and, and, and from, from the perspective of, uh, I mean, certainly any judge is in a difficult position of observing um, this depth of humanity, or, or rather inhumanity, I should say, while still needing to uphold the enforcement of the strict letter of the law. Um, so certainly a difficult position to be in, but I agree that those, those micro actions, however seemingly small, go a long way and at least illustrating that this is a not only sharp departure from the way um, the U.S. has conducted business on these matters in the past, but frankly a, a, a pivot towards not really valuing the very notion of family um, particularly children being uh, accounted for in reuniting with their family if the AUSA cannot even confirm um, the whereabouts of those children after the fact. Uh, and in fact, these the numbers about how many unaccompanied migrant children have been accounted for by the Federal uh, Department of Health and Human Services, um, typically the agency that would um, be quote unquote on the hook for for looking out for these children, those numbers have have changed and been reported at drastically different levels. Um, I think in some instances estimates have been around fifteen hundred. In other instances, estimates of the number of unaccompanied minors have been about six hundred to seven hundred. Um, I'm just curious whether sort of what is motivating um, the result of this inconsistent inconsistent reporting and whether. Um, allegations of these numbers being as high as they are, are sort of fair um, affronts to what the administration's policy is doing, or if this is, you know, in the words of Donald Trump's fav favorite refrain, sort of just misinformation or, or fake information that's being put out there to illustrate a picture that's that's not as bad as it actually is. Okay, so it is part of this is, is sort of I wouldn't say reporting artifact because the original reporting was okay, but sort of social media artifact. And that's that 1500 number. So what the 1500 number is about is not these family separations that we're seeing today. Okay. Those people, the, the 1500 is about that there's, there's for quite a while been many thousands of unaccompanied minors. Most of them are males and most of them are older teenagers. They're still minors, but they're not small children. And so many kids come up from Central America on their own for one reason or another, and they're called unaccompanied minors. So um, they are put in detention centers for a while until they get sponsors. Most of the sponsors are their own family members. So what that 1500 number is about is the fact that um, I believe it was ORR, you know, the agency, Office of Refugee Resettlement, after 30 days after they placed some of these kids with their, their sponsors, they called them up, and there were, out of many thousands of people that were called, there were 1,500 who didn't answer their phones, which is 
actually somewhat understandable, given that the um, government now is saying that they're going to check the immigration status of the sponsors. So you can imagine that a lot of times when the sponsors receive the kids, who are usually their relatives, they just kind of want to fade into the woodwork. And they may move, you know, and so there's not, it's not, I mean, missing children is the wrong word, I think, or the wrong phrase. These are kids who were not locatable after a phone call. They were already placed with sponsors who were usually their families. They're not lost. It's just that they weren't locatable after that phone call. So the problem is that that figure is sort of flown all over the place with this phrase, missing children. Now, the real issue is the other number that you mentioned. And that is the number of children who've been defined as unaccompanied minors and separated from their parents when, in fact, they weren't unaccompanied. They came up here with their relatives or their their parents most of the time. So the number that you have actually is wrong now. It's outdated. And I know that from being here on the ground. What was the number that you told me? 600 Uh, and something? Yeah, about 600 or 700. And it was during which dates? April to May, right? April to May, exactly. Okay. So I know that that number now is outdated. And the reason I know is I've been in court. For example, I was in a courtroom in El Paso um, in very late May, well after that uh, that date that you have. And um, there were 60 people that day tried in court. They had three different lawyers, court-appointed lawyers, who make that $140 per case to just plead them out real fast. One lawyer I interviewed who didn't speak Spanish told me, oh, I never see people who really have asylum claims, and I've never seen a person who's lost their kid. Um, The other lawyer that I interviewed who was in court the same day with another group of 20, just kind of randomly selected groups of 20, that's how they're divided, um, he said that, and he speaks Spanish, and he's an immigration lawyer as well as a criminal lawyer. So he told me that out of his group of 20, at least 10 had lost at least 15 children. One woman had lost three. And so, which gave me to believe that the first lawyer just wasn't even asking the question or wasn't asking it correctly. But um, I have become aware of just in my random reporting, I mean, I'm just one person and I really don't systematically know what's going on at all in these courts. But anecdotally, based on my own experience, I've probably run across over 20 you know, just since late May, since after those figures that you have. So um, so the figure is undoubtedly much higher than the one that's still in the news. You, you've been reporting from the border for quite some time now and have observed not only patterns of, 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 of immigration flows in and out of the United States, but particularly you've kept a keen eye on the tone uh, and tenor of our policies that have impacted that flow of immigration. Um, And I think, as you mentioned, yes, you are but one reporter, um, yet you're one that is physically situated um, down right on the border, which gives you sort of unique anecdotal insight to some of the the real upfront impacts um, around what's going on. And in some of your reporting, you've even pointed out that um, federal agents or, or federal statistics beyond just sort of um, missing children or unaccompanied minor inconsistencies in reporting, um, you've also pointed to the fact that the federal government has used pumped up statistics um, or perhaps exaggerated um, claims of danger um, in terms of uh, danger or assault threats to agents that are on the border um, to justify violence against immigrants. And I'm curious, is this sort of an uptick that you've seen 
in in recent time, or has that attempt often been used by federal agencies to be able to um, say, hey, you know what, these are these are in the words of, of President Trump, bad hombres, and they need to be engaged or tackled um, uh, against in order to, to save our own well being and, and protect the homeland, um, or is this something that is uh, you've seen an acute spike around in in recent um, months or years? Well, you know, that's a really, really good question, and I think it really bears directly on this question that you're engaging with on on your show, which is American identity. And the idea of the border as a very anarchic place filled with dark, violent people goes back at least 180 years in this country. I mean, it's part of American identity is there is this foundational piece, you know, a small piece in there about the the southern border. So there is there has been anti-Mexican sentiment in this country for I mean at least since the early part of the 19th century. And so, you know, if you want to use the word trope or whatever, like there's a trope in American culture about the border and anyone can just think about this including older people, the comic books with the cowboys, you know, and the dark-skinned people who are very evil um so, you know, it's a very old kind of idea that's really deep in the psyche of American identity. And so you see it ebb and flow. And um, whenever you have social anxieties around certain economic conditions or, you know, I mean, there's just times in history. And I've seen I'd say this is the second big one that I've seen where you have a panic over danger to the United States coming from our southern border. It's almost a very sexual um, idea, you know trope. You know, our border is kind of this thing. It's the skin on the body politic. The country is a body and the border is kind of this nether part that has skin on it. And we can't have, these are the words that I've been hearing for 35, 40 years, invasions, you know, floods, invasions, um, as you said, threats to the homeland. I mean, the word homeland in itself is right. sort of a very right. strange word when you're talking about American identity. Um, so, so I have seen these claims. I think it's always been part of Border Patrol identity to to say that it's a very special law enforcement agency. It's the law enforcement agency that runs the most risk. There's the most danger to the agents. It's far more than normal police in a normal city. You know, this is a very special law enforcement agency. And, um, you know, the statistics don't bear that out at all. It's, it's um, safe. It's relatively, you know, many times safer to be a Border Patrol agent in terms of injury and death than it is to be just a cop on the beat. Um, so, you know, this is something that the president has has really um, tapped into. He has a genius for tapping into deep social panic that sometimes lies dormant and at other times, you know, sort of comes out, comes back out. This is one of those times. I mean, it's a very potent, very potent piece of rhetoric because it lies so deeply in the American psyche. You're absolutely correct. And I think it's it's well put when you say there's a special genius at being able to tap into this deep sense of panic because in many respects, um, you know, on the one hand, we we should applaud and and be – um, not only proud of, but grateful for anyone that puts their their life on the line uh, at the border, even if those numbers are, are generally safer than you know the cop on the beat. Um, but in other respects, zooming out, this is less about just the border and more about that psyche of concern around 
opportunity in America and wage stagnation in America and you are not from this country, you do not speak English as a first language, therefore you are not American enough. And you know that has rung true from the early days, almost the early hours of, of this administration from you know the first issuance of the travel ban targeting particular countries, um, predominantly Muslim countries to um, you know, rampant ICE deportation enforcement actions um, via the Department of Homeland Security to even, as you said, just really, really deep-seated resentment and anti-immigrant uh, rhetoric, um, that resentment, of course, being against immigrants in the most recent State of the Union in January of, of earlier this year. Um, and I'm I'm curious, as this growing wedge has been placed um, among Americans um, who are, have come into this country from another land or are attempting to come into this country, and that wedged then against those who claim, whether rightly or, or wrongly, that they feel that they have a multi-generational claim to this country. Um, it, this is almost a, a, a very sort of um, theoretical and metaphysical conversation about who gets the opportunity to be here. Um, and yet it's something that you've witnessed just being where you are in Texas on the border, that kind of straddling of line day in and day out. Um, I, I guess I'm curious, and I know this is a big question, so there's not one easy answer, but as there's been this uptick in in fright and and almost uh, vitriol against uh, those Americans that are coming in as immigrants, whether legally or illegally, how is that changing the very notion of of what you've seen as the Americans that are on the other side of the border, maybe the Americans who are your neighbors on the American side of the border? Um, are they sort of desensitized to this because they've seen border politics at play for for decades, if not generations, in their own community? Um, or is fanning the flames around this, um, are, are folks even on the border communities of Texas susceptible to feeling even more um, you know, discouraged or concerned about jobs, opportunity, and violence in this country? Well, that's another good question. So I live in an, a city, you know, in a region where 90% of the people or more, 90 plus, are brown, they're Latino. Um, having said that, many of them in my community have relatives or they themselves work for the Border Patrol. So, you know, there's a lot of border militarization here that on a day-to-day -day level people are involved with because their loved ones are involved with it. But again, having said that, um, I think that most people here um, I mean, people know here from their daily experience that this is not a violent place. These are some of the border cities of the southern United States are some of the safest cities, if not the safest cities in the country. Um, so people know, because we live here, that it's not a place full of chaos. It's a place full of people going about their daily business. There are a lot of immigrants here, and um, they're doing what immigrants do. They work really hard. They're really, really happy that their kids are in good schools compared to where they came from. It's really a very sweet place to live. I mean, that's the best word for the border. It is, it's a lovely, lovely part of the United States. I've lived in two cities, and I've always been in love with it, and I raised my kids on the border. They're wonderful children because they were raised on the border. So, um, you know, I, I want to say that I, I feel that what's missing from what we've talked about so far is race. You know, there's a panic. I mean, you talk about people who have multi-generational claims to this country. Those people are white. And, um, you know, the country is shifting demographically. It's right. shifting away from super majority whiteness. 
And, you know, so I don't know whether people are anti-immigrants so much as they are anti-non-white people. This is this is a source of great identity panic for a lot of white people. So that part has to be taken into account. You know, and so like a deeper question is, what is it going to be like to have an American identity that's not based on whiteness? I mean, that's kind of the direction that I think we're going in. Um, I mean, you know, first of all, no American identity should ever be based on the color of anybody's skin or where they're from. You know, like the founding documents, which go back even further to the French Revolution, are really about democracy. And democracy is not about, you know, skin color identity, religious identity, and so forth. You know, those things all intrude, of course. In in pluralism, people bring all of these experiences and all of these old identities into the mix. There's this wonderful interview that I saw on a Ken Burns um, documentary about the Statue of Liberty. He interviewed James Baldwin, and they were talking about American identity. What What does it mean to be an American? And James Baldwin said, Baldwin said, it means constantly, constantly trying to make decisions, trying to come to consensus with people that are different from you, people who've had very different experiences. And it creates a constant state of anxiety. And that's what democracy is, you know, according to him. I was very impressed by this. He said, democracy means living in a state of anxiety. You know, you're not always just kind of barbecuing and being happy and zoned out. That's not what democracy is. You know, I I taught this. um, I used to teach ESL in New York City, and I had I remember I had a class. Language. uh, It was primarily Haitians and let's see who was the other group. Haitians and Dominicans who actually have historically been at each other's throats down in their home countries. So it was really nice to have this class where we're all sitting together and doing the same thing. A great class. And we were studying um, Plessy v. Ferguson, which is the Supreme Court ruling which um, codified and made legal the separation of races under the supposed rationale of equal uh, conditions, you know, equal treatment, just that everybody would be separate. So we had this discussion, and I said, like, what do you think? I mean, what would it do? You, do you think you could have? What if you could have? equal treatment, equal facilities? What if a black school could be just equally good as a white school or a neighborhood, anything at all? So some of the students said, well, yeah, that that seems like that'd be okay. But a bunch of them said that would be terrible because it would be so boring because it's so exciting to live in New York with all these different people. You know, these weren't people who sat around thinking about these things. They just spent a few years as immigrants coming from places that are multi, uh, you know, not multi, but um, they only have one type of people in them, one, you know, so-called race of people or one ethnicity of people. And they're coming to a very multicultural, multiracial environment, New York City. And there were many of them who could already defend that, you know, in the best way they were talking about democracy. So, I mean, I think that so much of what we're seeing now is this very deep fear on the part of white people, and I'm white myself, you know, so, so, but, you know, you grow up, and, and again, it's not marked, you know, you don't think of yourself as white, you don't think of the things that you enjoy as things that other people don't, that's how you grow up as a kid, you you have to think pretty a lot about whiteness, you know, because white people are not socialized to think about themselves as special as this marked group, so I think that now people are feeling like 
uh-oh, you know, the culture's changing, there's all these non-white people, and now they're in some positions of influence, and it's frightening to them. And I think that's what this is about. And and the sadism that gets released when the head of state encourages the panic rather than trying to deal with it, you know, right. in a calm and democratic way is is stunning and frightening. Agreed. And I mean, you, you know, when you say that America is not easy, it's because this sort of very notion of the American experiment um, is rooted in tough deliberation, right? Like arguments, spirited debates about the right path forward, um, being able to start from a place in which folks were, you know, not treated well or were disenfranchised or have not been, um, you know, granted equal treatment of civil liberties under the law, whether that's the um, LGBTQ community, whether that's, you know, uh, Latinos immigrating into the country and facing, you know, um, discrimination on the border and other parts of the the, the, the nation, um, stains in our history from, you know, the treatment of the Japanese during World War II, all of these blemishes on our record um, that continue to, to sustain residual impacts on our country, but all of these blemishes have only been sort of nudged away or the first spray of Windex to clean them away has really only been because we we look at ourselves with these hard truths, we, we nudge each other and push one another to think about things in a different way, and, and that has been core to America's identity. Um, but it seems that instead of a robust dialogue around how to actually create safer streets, if there are, in fact, gang-afflicted regions of the U.S., how do we actually create better access to housing and job training opportunities so that way those that are black, white, yellow, anything in between feel that they too can compete in the economy and it doesn't always have to be a scapegoated person of color who is seizing their job, or even robust dialogues around investment in workforce development or education, all of those elements should be the systemic um, investments that we make as a nation to try and offset this fear of otherization. And yet it just seems that fanning the flames of concern is the principal way of, of not just this administration, but it's an easy way to to get votes. And I, I, I fear that when it comes to America's identity, there has been a shift for the sake of of politics for the sake of, of narrative um, to be able to point out uh, through otherization who is to blame for a social ailment or a perceived ailment that you or I may be uh, experiencing as opposed to a dialogue around how to address a solution. And when there's a solution that um, seemingly not only persecutes parents who are seeking asylum, a, a basic tenet of international law that America has long sought to protect. But that solution also comes at the expense of young children who aren't even in this country, but simply would just like to hold hand in hand um, their parents as they try and figure out what's next for them. Then you've really sort of plummeted to this depths of not really as you said earlier, um, when you and I were talking about Americans themselves, even the the quote unquote longstanding Americans, multi general Amer generational Americans, of not being American enough to one another by virtue of not being American in identity to the treatment of others. And I, I while while I know you and I may agree with that, I'm I'm curious from from your perspective, are there steps? You know, what you you mentioned your children and sort of the the ability that they've been able to have growing up where they have of having a more 
um, worldview, world attitude of, of who makes up community and, and how people are decent regardless of, of what they look like? Are there steps that you've been able to see um, as a, either as a reporter or as a community member in the community on the border that, that you would point out to others as sort of glimmers of hope or senses of, of stories that they can engage in, that they can tell to be able to try and create a bridge between fellow Americans for not having to pit us against one another? Well, you know, just very locally here, I've been encouraged by the fact that so many people are now starting to do witness. They're doing court watch down here in these courts where everybody's in chains. chains. They're going up to the bridges to try to um, advocate for people that are stuck up there. But, you know, most people don't live on the border. Most Americans live somewhere else. And um, there certainly have been demonstrations against the separation of children from their parents and um, people are calling up their uh, Congress representatives, their senators and their representatives, and they're telling them to do something about this. Um, Diane Feinstein in California introduced a um, bill, you know, along with several other senators, I think over 30, to end the separation and reunite these kids. And I think that, um, you know, what people can do is discuss this with their, their own representatives. They're... Um, are petitions that you can sign. You know, you can go online, you can go to the ACLU or the AILA, and you can sign petitions demanding that this stop. Um, there are organizations down near the border that are um, just very aggressively getting pro bono lawyers, these great pro bono lawyers, into the detention centers to try to get the mothers and the fathers out so that they can be reunited with their kids. And they need bond money. I mean, it costs a lot of money to post bond and get the parents out. Um, I don't know whether you would want me to mention one or two of those. Yeah, do you want absolutely. me to do that? Yeah, well, so, sure. so the one that I think is doing really good, aggressive work is RAICES. It's R-A-I-C-E-S. They're based in San Antonio, Texas. So anybody who wanted to could look them up on the net. That's fantastic. Um, I, I appreciate that. And, and, you know, to echo what you had said earlier, um, it, we know that the ACLU has been doing a lot of or investing a lot in mobilizing not only um, support for um, this community of, of migrants at the border, but particularly um, trying to raise awareness among electeds, uh, both federally, but, but also locally to try and lean in. Um, I, I, and I have to say that as someone that has been a a reporter taking a look at these patterns over the arc of the last couple of years. Um, you've also spent time not just on the Texas side of the border, um, but on the Mexican side of the border um, as, you know, to really underscore the urgency of folks um, reaching out to groups like the ones that you've mentioned, um, but also being mindful that this is the policy being enacted in this country that is chipping away at America's identity of, of a land of opportunity and inclusivity. Can you just, can we, can you tell us a little bit about what you've seen being on that side of the border, what you've sort of observed and what kind of um, either pleas or, or stories of, of why people are aiming to, to put themselves in these positions um, from, from Southern America, from Mexico, from Central America? What, what does that look like and, and what kind of color can you share on that front? Yeah, um, people in Mexico talk all the time about being very frightened that they or their families are going to be killed. Uh, most people I talk to actually have someone in their family who's already been killed by cartels. Um, 
They didn't pay, you know, um, it's like the mafia used to go and get protection money in this country from businesses. So that's how it works there. If there's somebody who's got a business and they're asked to pay protection money, and if they refuse or they don't have the money, they're killed. They're also um, people that have just gotten involved as, you know, really minors like teenagers. They've been pressured into doing minor drug activities, and then they, they don't go along with that, and they're killed. So that's Mexicans, right? And you know, they're not traditionally thought of as people seeking asylum, but they're just living in really dangerous situations, particularly in certain states in the interior and on the border. And then Central Americans, um, they're coming mostly from Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala. And again, you know, there's tremendous violence in those countries from gangs. And then also for women, and unfortunately, Sessions has just basically canceled this line of asylum. But, you know, women in countries like Guatemala are just routinely violently abused by male partners and husbands. And the state doesn't or doesn't want to or can't protect women from this kind of violence. And so up until two days ago, uh, women were considered to be a class. You know, women from certain countries like Guatemala were considered to be a class of people who, because of their status, because of their social identity as women, were not protected in their own country. So, um, and the children too, this this woman who I interviewed, um, who was from Guatemala, who I interviewed a few weeks ago, the husband had also threatened repeatedly to kill the child. And um, Hmm. his family is police. And so she felt that she had no protection whatsoever. Now, you know, the United States sometimes says, well, they got up to Mexico, so now they can just live in Mexico. Like they came from Central America. We don't want them. They can just live in Mexico. But the problem, of course, is that Mexico is also extremely violent. And people coming up from Central America are especially at risk for being kidnapped for ransom by cartels. Um, So to send somebody to a country that's also very dangerous is called refoulement. That's a human rights word. And it's illegal to do that. So, you know, just because somebody's come up through Mexico doesn't mean that they don't have the right to um, apply for asylum in the United States. And, and you know, people are just, they're not leaving for fun. <laughs> you know, the word Absolutely. they use is aventura. They are not having an adventure. They are going through hell to get up here. It's no yeah. fun. And they're trying to, they're trying to protect their children. This one woman I interviewed told me that her uncle had drowned in the Rio Grande five years ago, trying to get up here. And yet she came with her child, knowing that they were going to have to get in the water and her uncle had drowned. She said, I, I had to do it there. I mean, it was safer than staying in Guatemala. Wow. And I mean, those stories, you know, zooming out and and just sort of one last question for you. uh, The stories are not only heart wrenching, um, but they're particularly alarming when you sort of, you know, juxtapose them with what we were talking about at the top of this conversation, which is the way that this administration has chosen to enforce these cases, the way that children have been splintered away from families on top of all of these incredibly um, tax, not tech, sorry, not taxing, but but incredibly horrifying stories and, and approaches that they've had to take just to try and seek a better life ostensibly for their children. Um, but it does come back to something that you pointed out earlier, which is that this battle for race 
identity in the United States, even if American identity is sort of a bit of a construct or a made-up concept. Um, many would argue that it is a about a broad tapestry of worldviews, of perspectives, of of creed, of religion, of of who one loves versus um, what one looks like. Um, and yet, there has been a rising chorus of uh, you know discussion around what it means to be a a privileged white person in America or a privileged white man in America. And I ask this um, not necessarily to to side with that position, but you know, recently I, I had a friend tell me. Uh, who you know went to, went to undergrad at a, uh, studied at their undergraduate courses at a very very liberal school on the west coast of the United States um, is a is a working um, individual who lives in a fairly cosmopolitan city um, with liberal identities and you know is making a good wage for himself but happens to be a white man himself and the son of immigrants and. In this conversation around race identity and what it means to be American and who is, quote unquote, more American than the other, he did convey, you know, I, I feel concerned that when I live in a liberal enclave or when I turn on, you know, television that might have a, a liberal slant to it, that I am the guy who is being talked about as having, you know, too much privilege or too much opportunity or that I should be, you know, pegged down a notch in some capacity. Um, and whether or not that is a fair interpretation of what is going on in the world, I would argue what you and I were saying earlier, that America is a deliberative, uh, you know, experiment, and we need to have those tough dialogues, even if people disagree or agree. Um, but what do we say in the pursuit of those that are looking to claim a mantle of what American identity ought to be to those individuals who who just feel that they're kind of caught in the crossfires of this debate, kind of trying to mind their own business, but, you know, accidentally feel hit or bruised by this dialogue, even if it's in pursuit of a demographic reality or in pursuit of kind of a more inclusive reality? It, is what he's saying, have does he have any standing based off of kind of how you've seen the dialogue around immigration ebb and flow over the years? Um, I mean, as a white person, you know, I've kind of been in that crossfire myself, and um, it's not comfortable, but the people who talk about dialogue around these issues, you know, around race, they they acknowledge that it's not comfortable. I mean, it's not comfortable. It's anxiety provoking. The whole condition right now, I think, for white people is anxiety provoking. Um, it has to be talked about. I know that there are people who are trying to figure out ways that white people and people of color can talk about these issues and sort of ramp down the tension. But again, I really take very seriously James Baldwin's contention that the state of democracy, and by that he was talking about America. I mean, it was a piece about the Statue of Liberty. The, the correct state is a state of anxiety, okay? Like, but we have to define what the anxiety is going to be. I know that WNYC has another show called United States of Anxiety, where anxiety is considered a negative condition. But I think that anxiety, the way Baldwin was talking about it, is a positive condition. So maybe that's what we have to do is try to figure out how to make the anxiety of pluralism and dialogue a positive attribute. Yeah, that that's incredibly well put. And frankly, the reporting that you've done, um, not just in recent months about um, these, you know, children being separated from their families, but over the arc of several years in which you've 
really leaned in to examine um, trends in immigration and the tough truths about what has happened, um, not only with their immigration policy, but the the tough tough realities that migrants are seeking, or sorry, experiencing on either side of the border, um, I think really is an incredible body of work that contributes to that anxiety of pluralism and um, will help us continue to, to suss out this debate and and really try and sharpen our, our worldview of what American uh, identity means at home and, and how America will be perceived abroad. So thank you for, for frankly, your service to creating that, that body of reporting, Debbie, and thank you so much for joining American okay, Enough. Okay, well, thank you. I think I'll go back and look at a photograph of a Xanax, although I won't take a real one. <laughs> <laughs> I hear that. Thank you, ma'am. Okay. This has been American Enough with Vikram Iyer. American Enough is a production of Mouth Media Network. Contact Vikram with your comments and questions at 844-4-VIKRAM and connect with the show on social media at American Enough. Theme music by Chris Thomas. Episodes available at AmericanEnoughPodcast.com and everywhere the best podcasts are found. To learn more about Mouth Media Network and how you can partner with this podcast, visit MouthMediaNetwork.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host, callers, and guests, and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Mouth Media Network. No portion of the show may be reproduced, published, or rebroadcast without the express written permission of the producers. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.